Good morning. I have my Lauren Bacall voice today. Or my lady who lived in a bar and smoked all her life voice, however you want to. I'd rather call it my Lauren Bacall voice. Thank you for that worship time. It's really anointed, really beautiful. Thank you. Um, just a couple of things. Um, this message that I've been giving you, the message that's in Because He Loves Me, um, as I was writing that and working through it, uh, I, have, I have six grandchildren. I have the microphone, so I get to talk about them. Um, <laughs> I have six grandchildren, and so I was in conversation, of course, with my daughter and my son about, you know, okay, well, if this is what we think about the gospel, then how does that work in our parenting? And I, and I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that my parenting really didn't have anything to do with the gospel. I mean, basically, when I was raising my children, it was talk to them about Jesus enough till they pray some prayer, and then it's all about the rules. Right? And, um, and I knew that that wasn't right now that I had sort of come to more live in the light of the gospel more fully, um, but we didn't know how this gospel message would impact parenting. And so that began a, like a year and a half or two years sort of search for truth. Uh, my daughter and I and a number of friends would get together fairly frequently and just talk, okay, well then, but how would that work? But I need to raise my children properly, but what do we do with the gospel then? And, you know, those kinds of conversations. We really were wrestling through it. At the same time, we were going through Luther's commentary on Galatians, and, um, and that became very helpful to us as we really were trying to figure out how the gospel would impact parenting. And um, so anyway, out of that discussion came uh, this book, Give Them Grace, Dazzling Your Kids with the Love of Jesus. And um, actually, Jessica and I were speaking at a conference here in the South. It was an international, very large conference, and we were talking about this book and some uh, kids who I would say were in their, you know, young adolescence, and they were helping us with our media, and they read the title of the book, and they said, dazzling your kids with the love of Jesus. Yeah, pfft, I'd like to see that. And I thought, you know, that's really interesting. Um, what do your children know about the gospel, aside from, you know, it's your way of making them sort of obey? So anyway, let me encourage you. This book is there. There are, it's also on audiobook. It's also on DVD. So that might be something that you could take uh, home and uh, let it rock your world. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I also want to say we run our own book tables. And the reason that we do that is because our youngest son, Joel, is in seminary. He's going to Westminster Seminary. He's going to, he's training for the pastorate and we're trying to help him financially. So I'll just tell you, you can buy those books cheaper on Amazon. 
<clears throat> I don't know why Amazon, I don't know how Amazon sells things the way they do. I think it's a big Ponzi scheme. <laughs> and if everybody in the world stopped buying from Amazon for two days, the whole thing would come crashing down. But I can't sell books for what Amazon can sell them for, and I get a nice discount. Sometimes people think that authors get their books for free. Um, I don't. I have to pay for them just like you do. Um, so anyway, we, we charge the cover value of the books. You can get them cheaper on Amazon, and if money's an issue, then get them there. But if you want to help us help Joel get through seminary, then... There you have it. All right, that's the commercial. <laughs> I also want to ask you to pray, if you would please. Pray for me. Um, I am in the beginning of seven weeks of speaking in a row. That will uh, end up at the end of February in Fort Lauderdale at Liberate, which how many of you are familiar with the Liberate conference? Yeah. So um, I don't know if you ever travel to go to conferences, that would be a conference I would travel to go to. And um, I mean, there's not a lot of them. <laughs> so uh, I would encourage you, if you have the time or inclination, to go there. Um, it's it's going to be crazy great. Um, people who know the gospel a lot better than me are going to be just hammering it every single message. You know Sally Lloyd-Jones? She does the uh, Jesus Storybook Bible, which is marvelous. She's going to be there, and um, Ray Ortland and Brian Chapel and Tully and Chivijan, and Shane and Shane, and whoever they are, I don't know, but I say that, and, and the girls go, ooh! So, um, <laughs> anyway. So, if you think of it, please pray that God would grant me grace over the next seven weeks to do what I need to do. <clears throat> What we're going to do now is, um, I'm, I'm not quite sure where this is going to be, or if it's even going to work. Okay, good. Um, people have been speaking for thousands of years before PowerPoint was ever invented, right? And we actually used to have to memorize lyrics. <laughs> so... Um, we left off last night with my reminding you of the gospel message, which includes, and when I, when I say gospel, and I want to remind you, when I say gospel, what I mean is not just Christ on the cross, although that is the pinnacle of the gospel. When I say gospel, I don't mean simply that. I mean the incarnation the sinless life, the substitutionary death, the bodily resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. That is what I mean when I say the word gospel, because that's the whole message that we need to hear. I need to also say, and this is sort of off that a little bit, I just finished writing a book that will be out in October called Found in Him, um, the joy of the incarnation in our union with Christ. And so that will be out in October. And you might pray about that. Crossway is, have, is going to have me do DVDs and workbooks and all sorts of stuff that's going to go along with that. So uh, I don't think we ever think much about the incarnation. You know, it's kind of like, well, okay, Jesus is God and man, but kind of how does that work? It's sort of like, 
you know, he sort of is sort of a man, but not really. And he's kind of more God than he is man. And um, so anyway, I think that'll be really helpful for you, particularly in light of the fact that we need to know that there's somebody who knows exactly what it is to walk in our skin, to live our lives. So that's the gospel. The incarnation, sinless life, substitutionary death, bodily resurrection, ascension, and continuing intercession and reign of the Son of God. He will come back. That's good news, too. Um, so this is the perspective that we lose sight of as we mature in our faith, right? It's, that's, we kind of heard that message when we came to Christ. I came to the Lord in 1971, right before my 21st birthday, I had gone to church from time to time uh, with my grandmother, who was a Lutheran, was actually confirmed in the Lutheran church, didn't have faith, never believed. Um, and my father's Jewish, was Jewish, he's since died, and my mother was a non-practicing Catholic. So I was not raised in a Christian home, which by the way, let me just ask, how many of you were not raised in a Christian home? Okay, now I want, leave your hands up. I want all of you to look around and see how many people's hands are up. There's a lot. Now that needs to say something to you. And what it says to you is salvations of the Lord. And the salvation of your children doesn't depend on you. Okay? See, that's good news, isn't it? So I came to Christ um, as a 21-year-old and out of a very debauched lifestyle, and I, um, and this gospel message, when I, when I heard it, that there was actually someone I certainly didn't understand it the way I am beginning to understand it now, but that there was somebody who actually loved me and who paid the price for my sin, the penalty for my sin, because I was, even though I lived this hideous debauched lifestyle, Every night I would go to bed wishing I was somehow better, you know? And um, the fact that there was somebody that had done that and Christ, God, God by the Holy Spirit brought me to faith to believe that he had done that, that to me was, was so amazing, so, so just ridiculous, mind-blowing that I, um, I was on fire. I really was. I, I was on fire. I went everywhere witnessing. I was one of those new Christians, you know, that make every, all the old Christians go, just wait a while. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was really lovely. And like within a couple of months of my um, regeneration, I was in Bible college. And, um, and then I started learning about all of the things I was supposed to be doing. And my Christianity changed from being about Jesus and what he had done to be about me and what I was supposed to do to get my gospel bus on down the road. And I forgot that message. God, by his grace, within the last 10 years or so, began to remind me of that message, and I'm so thankful for that. See, this is the perspective that we lose sight of as we mature in our faith, right? So if I had said, as I said last night, that this, were to be, this was going to be a presentation on the gospel, would you think, would you have thought that it was primarily for unbelievers? 
I think that's how we, we tend to think. If we've been in the church any time at all, if somebody says, uh, I'm going to talk about the gospel, there's going to be a message about the gospel, automatically we think, okay, that's a message for somebody else. It's not a message for me because I've already heard it. Here's another question to help you sort of process through that. Are you more focused on your sanctification? Do you know what the word sanctification means? That's that slow change into Christ-likeness. Are you more focused on your sanctification, your change, how you're getting that gospel bus down the road? Are you more focused on your sanctification or your justification? Now, again, we talked last night about justification. And justification really has two parts. Double imputation, justification. Part number one is just as if I had never... Yes, okay, so forgiveness, right? What would it mean to you? What would it mean to you if the Lord Jesus Christ walked into your living room or your kitchen and said to you, you're forgiven. I mean, wouldn't that be something? That absolution of sin is so marvelous. What would, it, what would it be like to live your whole life without guilt? See, that's actually where you're supposed to live. It's actually what you have. You already have it if you believe. If you don't believe, then I hope you feel guilty. But if you're a believer, you shouldn't feel guilt. I mean, you should feel guilt and repent and then remember. You're forgiven. You are forgiven. So justification is just as if I had never sinned and then also just as if I had always, you can say it, See, it's one thing to say, oh yeah, you're forgiven. It's another thing to say, you've got the righteousness of God. That's what Paul says. You have the righteousness of God. You have the righteousness of God. When do you have the righteousness of God? Optimum word, now. You, right now, you have God's righteousness. It's almost too much, isn't it? Isn't it? So look at the person next to you and say, I, not I, Elise, I, you, I have the righteousness of God. Go ahead, say it. Sort of feel like you shouldn't say it, right? It's kind of like, oh, I don't know. I mean, I think it's easier for me to say you have the righteousness of God, right? Because I don't live in your heart. I live in my own heart. I know all the sin that's there. For me to be able to say I have the righteousness of God. See, and then we think, oh no, I'm, that's not properly holy. It's not, it's not, it's blasphemous. I should, and let me just tell you, that's, that's a lie from Satan. He does not want you to know how righteous you are. Do you know why? Because if he can keep you remembering your sins, he'll keep you doing them. Because you'll, you know, give up in despair. And that's exactly what he wants you to do. <coughs> so.
So where are you more focused on your sanctification, on how good you're doing, getting your bus down the road, or on your justification, just as if I had never sinned, just as if I had always obeyed? That's how God sees me, just as if I had always obeyed. Do you believe that you need a formula for obedience? That's what I was talking about last night, that list. Do you believe that you need a list of things to do? And let me just say, Scripture is full of lists. I'm very well aware of it, and we're going to be looking at one of them in, in a moment. But that's not where your primary focus should be. Your primary focus should not be on a formula for obedience. Now, let me again say, I'm a biblical counselor. I know all about put off and put on. But if you take all of those put offs and put ons and wrench them out of the context in which the Holy Spirit gives them to us, which is the gospel, then you won't have the proper motivation, power, faith to be able to do those things. You see, it's the gospel that is to act as the motivation, the motor that runs, propels those things. Mike Horton, who was, I heard him at Liberate last year, he was talking and he said, I need wind for my sails. See, I can have a great sailboat with all the great gadgets of how to navigate, and all of the wonderful things. But if there's no wind for my sails, my boat's not going anywhere. The gospel is the wind for your sails. And I'm pretty sure that most of us spend all of our time reading the instructions on how to operate the radar and the radio and all these things while we're stuck dead in the water because we don't have wind for our sails. I need good news, don't you? And it's the good news. That's what that word gospel means. <laughs> you know, really, that the gospel means good news? Would your kids say the gospel meant good news? It's good news that we need. And that's what will propel us motivate us to do those lists? Do you believe that you need a formula for obedience or a redeemer? See, Christianity is not a formula for obedience. Christianity is a history. It is a story of someone who lived perfectly and died shamefully in your place. That's the message. Do you struggle with condemnation? What is condemnation? Condemnation is your thought that you just can't believe you're as bad as you are. I mean, do you, do you come away from a day or a conversation or even a thought and say to yourself, I, I can't, oh, I can't believe I did that. I said that. I, I can't believe I, that. See, the reason that we struggle with self-condemnation is simply because we haven't really believed the gospel. And I'm not saying you, have, you don't have saving faith. I'm, I'm saying that the answer to self-condemnation 
which a lot of times eventuates in depression, self-pity, anger, self-indulgence. See, if, if I'm all the time working with self-condemnation, then eventually what will happen in my heart is I'll, I'll try to be better and try to get better and try to get better because I'm focused on myself. So I'm trying to approve of myself, trying to get better, and then eventually, if I don't get better, I just give up and give in. See, what people need to hear is you're forgiven. Right now, you're forgiven. He knows that sin, you're forgiven. You have the righteousness of God. So, do you struggle with condemnation? Do you struggle with pride and anger? You see, as long as you're living what I would call under the law, which means that I'm using the law as a way to try to merit God's favor, as long as I am living under the law, then I will either be despairing in self-condemnation or I will be angry and judgmental. Those are the only two eventualities. So if you see in yourself this anger and criticism of others, being critical of others, I don't know why I'm so critical of other people, but you know, they're such jerks. That, <laughs> that criticism of others and anger when other people fail. I mean, have you ever said something like, I can't believe you would act that way. Really? I mean, have you, I can't believe Ar Lance Armstrong would whatever. Really? I mean, have you seen your own heart? So, self-condemnation and anger and judgmentalism all sort of go together. That's what it's like to live under the law without the gospel. Uh, do you think that God is angry with you? Do you think he's angry? Now, let me just ask you a question. Right now, Jesus Christ is sitting in heaven at the right hand of God, still, by the way, wearing our flesh. He's taken human flesh into the throne room of God where it had never been before. Still in heaven, incarnate. He will always be the incarnate Savior. That's, you, you know, right now, your brain should just go... <laughs> See, because when he became one of us, that was an eternal identification with his people. So right now, in heaven, Jesus is seated as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, which, by the way, when you get to heaven, you're going to know him because he's going to be the only one there bearing scars. He's going to bear those scars through eternity so that you can look at him and go, oh, wow, you love me like that? Just that's for eternity. And right now in heaven, Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. Do you think God is angry with him right now? Answer me. Do you think God is disappointed with him right now? You're in Christ. See, that's what Ephesians 1 says, isn't it? That's a mind blower, right? You are seated where? With him in heavenly places. You're seated with him right now in heavenly places. You are in Christ. You are in union with Christ. So whatever is true about you, let me rephrase that. Whatever is true about 
Christ and God's relationship, the Father's relationship with the Son, is right now true about you? Is God the Father angry with God the Son right now? Is God the Father disappointed with God the Son right now? Is God the Father waiting for God the Son to get his act together? Oh, nice. We have PowerPoint now. Thank you. Is he? Why do you think he is with you? See, it's because we don't see our identification with him. We are one with him. We are in union with him. With him. So everything that is true about him, aside, of course, from his deity, but everything that is true about him relationally is true about us. What would it mean to you in your life if every day you knew God was overjoyed with you? That he looks at you and he smiles. It's almost too good to be true, isn't it? That he actually looks at you and he smiles. That he's happy with you. He's happy with you. Now, can I just tell you that if you live in the light of that, it will not make you want to watch pornography. And I realize that I'm speaking to women, but there are any number of women who at this point are enslaved to pornography. When I tell you that you have the complete righteousness of Christ and you are completely absolved of your sin, does it make you want to go sin? It, it, if you have a heart that's alive at all, it should make you rejoice and want to obey. See, that's what the message does. That's why we need to hear it, and that's why Satan would love nothing better than to get you all focused on how you're doing. Because as long as you're focused on how you're doing, he will be able to keep you enslaved to your sin. When you get to the place where in your Christianity it's no longer about you and it becomes more and more about him, then you stop obsessing over your progress. You stop obsessing over your progress and just live in the light of his forgiveness and love. And then the most amazing thing happens. Jessica talks about this with her parenting. It drains the anger out of your life. And it drains the anger out of your parenting. See, because if I don't think that, if, if I finally get free from the thought that everything depends on me and my kids getting their act together and my getting my act together so my kids get their act together, then I don't have to be angry with them anymore. I can rejoice in them and really enjoy them. We've had any number of women come to us, really tears running down their faces and say, thank you. This is the first time I've ever enjoyed my child because I was always so worried that I was doing something wrong or he was doing something wrong. Do you think God is overjoyed with you? Here is the next question. We'll see if this works. Ooh. In your pursuit of godliness, have you left Jesus behind? Now, let me just tell you guys, in case you're nervous about all those notes you have there, we're not going to get to them, so I'm not worried about it. 
everything that's everything we're supposed to get to this morning we'll get to and whatever we don't get to you know by the book um, <laughs> by the book put my son through seminary um, in your pursuit of godliness have you left Jesus behind That's the question. And then, and then, don't come away from this saying, all right, now I've finally got the key. I finally have the answer, and from now on, I'm going to remember that Jesus, I'm going to remember that, I'm going to remember the gospel, I'm going to remember Jesus from now on. No, you won't. Menopausal or not, no, you won't. You're not going to remember and, I mean, I write books about it, and there are days I couldn't find it, you know, with a flashlight. But see, God's got that, too. See, Jesus is handling it all. So there are days that I have faith, and I remember, and, um, you know, go through times of trial, significant trial, uh, within the last few months. Both my mother and father-in-law have died go through significant trial, watching them die, being with my husband during that time, going through significant trial with being sinned against, watching other people's sin. That has impact on my life, going through all of that. In the middle of great trial, there are, there are times when, yeah, I really do see the gospel, but then there are other times when I'm, you know, walking through a parking lot with my grandchildren and they say something and I think, you know, I should say something about the gospel here, but I sure don't know what it is. But see, that's okay too. Because the bus doesn't depend on my being able to remember the gospel all the time. Do you get it? I'm trying to free you. Be free, little birdies. <laughs> right? It doesn't depend on you. Take a great big breath in. <gasps> it doesn't depend on you. And I'm up to here with conferences and books and speakers who want to tell you that God's plan in the earth depends on you. It doesn't depend on you. May God be praised forever. If it depended on you, it wouldn't happen. Isn't that obvious? Today is the inauguration of our president. Are you aware of that? I'm not making any remark, one way or the other. That president is a good gift to us because all authority has been ordained by God. And he's there, not only by our choice as Americans, but also as God's good gift to us. What is God doing? I don't know. I don't know what he's doing with some president. With any president, I don't know what he's doing, but I do know this. He's God's good gift to us, and we better be praying for him and respect him. That's what the Bible teaches. Now listen, if Paul could say that, I'm sort of derailing right now, but if Paul could say that to the Romans... Uh, with the government that they had, which was a full-on dictatorship, wicked dictatorship, 
There is no authority except that which has been established by God. And it is there as a gift from God to you. Then you pray every day for your government. I'm going to stop right now and let's do that. Father, you are the king, not just of America, but of the whole earth. And all people are yours, and you rule and overrule in everyone's lives to bring everything according to your plan for your ultimate purposes and glory and for our good. And so we thank you that you have given us a true king. You have given us Jesus Christ, who is our king. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the country in which we live. We thank you for President Obama, for his family, for all the members of his staff, for his cabinet, we thank you for all of the people in the armed forces. We thank you for all of the people in uh, local governments, state governments. Thank you, Lord, for the police. You've established authority for the punishment of wrongdoers that we might live a peaceful life. We pray that you would help us. Help us to have faith that would believe that you are, in fact, in control Help us not to either gloat because our guy won or be in despair because our guy lost. But help us to receive from you the government you have established. And we pray that you would help us to lead peaceful and godly lives no matter what the future may hold. Please bless President Obama today. Please grant him wisdom. We pray that you would turn him, Lord, completely to yourself, and we pray especially that the scourge of abortion would end in our land. But Lord, we know that you frequently use wickedness in your purposes, and so not that you are the author of it, but that you do use it, and so we pray that you would help us to love our, our enemies, our neighbors, and submit ourselves fully to your rule in our lives. Please do help our country. Please help us, Lord, we pray. Grant us hearts that would be respectful and full of faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> See, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the king, and that as a good king he is pardoning, protecting, providing for you all the time and that he's ruling over you if you believe that then you can look at the changing in governments whether or not you're happy or sad today you can look at the changing in governments and say yes that's important but it's not the most important thing the most important thing is I have a king and nobody is going to pull him down right? sorry <clears throat> that was government 101. Um, 
Okay, what I want to do now is I want to take some time and read to you from Second Peter. <clears throat> because there is a list here, and I want you to look at the list and think about it. This, by the way, is my iPad. It was given to me by my publisher. And when I got it, I said to my kids, I said, well, what is this? What am I supposed to do with it? <laughs> and they said, give it to me. <laughs> now, of course, the problem is I've gotten very used to it, and I can't read any book that's not backlit. <laughs> Serious problems. Um, again, where is your attention focused? Why does the incarnation, sinless life, substitutionary death, bodily resurrection matter to you today? Are you suffering from spiritual amnesia? That's the question. This is how I'm framing our discussion. That even though we believe the gospel, which we do, we believe the gospel, the places where the gospel actually intersects and powerfully affects our life is infrequent. So, for instance, how does John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How many of you know that verse? All right. Impacts your heart's responses when you don't receive the coveted invitation. You know, you find out that your pal is having a whole bunch of friends over and you didn't get invited. How are you with that? See, I'm such a snot that I can know, I can find out that somebody's having a party and that I didn't get invited, and I can know that I wouldn't have gone anyway and still be mad I didn't get invited. <laughs> See, um, or, or when your kids disrespect you in front of your friends, you know. Our son Joel, who's now in seminary, See, this hair we have, my daughter has the same sort of hair. It's kind of this crazy curl thing. Um, I used to fight it, but I don't anymore now. I just, and I love to walk in and say, is my, did the wind mess up my hair? And people kind of go, ah. <laughs> um, When Joel was about 16, we live in Southern California, so he was a surfer, and when he was about 16, um, he was what one might call hygienically challenged. <coughs> That's his heart. And, and his hair was sort of, you know, like this length or maybe a little longer. And he would go surf. And then, I don't know, there was like seaweed in his hair, <laughs> sand fleas, fish jumping. I don't know. It was pretty gnarly. And, um, I mean, he was, he was kind of a mess. And, uh, but, you know, he's a really good kid. And I... And I my, my husband and I didn't think that that was something we wanted to fight with him about at that point, right? I mean, I, I'm pretty well convinced that you shouldn't fight, with any, fight about anything that can go away in, you know, like a couple of weeks or something. <clears throat> Nothing, well, I mean, you know, certain heart issues you want to draw lines at. There's plenty of places to draw lines in the sand. You don't have to draw lines in the sand over how you look. And, except I, I always encourage my children not to get tattoos. Um, they didn't, 
really two of them didn't listen to me at all, but I encouraged them not to because you really don't want to do something, you know, when you're in your 20s or younger that when you're in your 60s you might regret, right? It's like you get these really beautiful tattoos on your arms and then you get to be my age and, you know, <laughs> kids look at, you know, your arms and go, eh, what is that old lady on your arm, you know? So we would walk into church, and Joel was like, Meh. you know, on, um, sorry, we used to always watch The Simpsons, and, and on The Simpsons, there's this character called Sideshow Bob, Meh. you know, his hair goes like that, that's what Joel looked like, and we would walk in, and I could watch people in the congregation, particularly my friends would look at Joel, and I could see them sort of, you know, <laughs> Um, and I would get so angry, but I wouldn't get angry at my friends, I would get angry at Joel, because he was sort of embarrassing me, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? It's like the point of our children is to make us proud, as if you need anything to make you more proud than you already are. <laughs> <coughs> See, we used to have a pastor that would give my kids a dollar every time they would come and recite some verse, you know? So, um, so I would trot my children in and say, Say John 3.16, you know? And <laughs> Jessica's head would spin around and start vomiting. The, ah, I hate God, you know, that. She never did that really, but. They'd always look at me like, what are you talking about? John, what's John? I don't know. <laughs> How much of the anger that you have at your children is driven by embarrassment? That they're not making you look good as a in your mom identity. See, does John 3.16 matter then? Right then. Does your identity as a beloved child of God who is completely forgiven, completely righteous, that's your complete identity, does that matter right then when your children disrespect you? I'm not saying it's okay for children to disrespect their parents. I'm saying what drives your anger. Or, you know, I, I'm, I'm not like terribly gifted in cooking. Um, <laughs> my husband would laugh if he heard me say that. And, um, you know, but let's just, let's just assume that someday I get up, it's Sunday morning, and I, you know, I actually had gone grocery shopping and um, actually had thought ahead that, you know, maybe I would need to eat on Sunday. And when I'm in a book project, my husband... Uh, when he used to work full-time, my husband would call me from work about 2.30 or so, and he'd say, hi, honey, getting ready to come home in about an hour or so. Uh, what's for dinner? He's saying that because he's hoping I'm going to remember that I'm supposed to cook. That's why he's saying that. And um, so let's say that it's Sunday morning, and I actually have remembered that I'm supposed to cook on Sunday. And I actually bought a roast and put it in the oven, set the oven to come on at a certain time, you know, had that whole gig going on in my mind. And, um, 
and you know, even maybe put some dough in the bread baker and whole thing. You know, I'm Susie homemaker today, and and get home, get home from church, and drive into the drive into the garage, and I don't smell anything. You know, it's like wow, that's really weird. And I go into the kitchen, and it, it appears that I tried to set the oven, but I didn't. Now, what happens to you when stuff like that happens? See, my default is to get mad at Phil. <laughs> if you wouldn't rush me, if you would give me a little help. All right. See, what, what does it mean when you're expecting to have some really lovely feast and you get home and there is no food? What's your identity? What is your identity based in? My identity is that, and this is what we need to remember, my identity is that I'm one who's been loved immeasurably by God and have been made one with him. Loved immeasurably and united in marriage to him. See, in the ancient Near East, when people became betrothed, it was as serious of a commitment as what we have now in an actual wedding ceremony. That's why when Mary and Joseph were betrothed before they actually came together, Joseph was going to divorce her. Well, how can he divorce her if they're not actually married? Well, that was what engagement was like then, betrothal. It was actually the ceremony that then later on would be consummated. But see, that's where you are with Christ right now. You are betrothed to Christ. And a party's coming, by the way. Don't you love, like, fun wedding parties? Party's coming. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb, and you are the bride. Yee. Right? And just as if you are as betrothed to him now as you ever will be. Now, there will come a day of consummation. You understand, I don't mean that like corporally, but there, there will come a day of consummation when faith will be sight, but you can't be more betrothed to Christ than you already are. See, that's your identity. Who are you? Mrs. Jesus Christ. Do you ever think about that? <laughs> I mean, you know, how would that change who, who, what you thought of yourself? My identity as one who has been loved immeasurably by God, been made one with him, will continually be contrasted with this statement, my identity and self-worth is determined by whether I am popular, respected, a winner, and well-fed. See, the whole sport thing, and I don't know, you know, what you all are into here, baseball or football or whatever, college sports, I, I, whatever. You know what drives sports is that identity. Uh, my identity is that team. Now, see, that's easy for me to pick at because sports don't ring my bell. Not like that. There are other things. 
You know, my identity is I am this kind of theological woman. Or I have these kinds of kids or these kinds of grandchildren. Or I have this or this or this. See, my identity needs to be I am Mrs. Jesus Christ. That's who I am. That's my name. I am Christian. And I've been loved by him. And I am betrothed to him. So now let's look at this passage in 2 Peter 1. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Good. Hack up a lung. Second Peter 1, starting with verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Here comes a list. Make every effort to su supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Now there is a list. Faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. Those are character qualities, qualities that I could make a list of and try to grow in. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, none of us want to be ineffective or unfruitful, so we want to look at those qualities. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now that's really, really interesting. Because I can look at that whole list and really get on board and say, yeah, I need to grow in faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love, and yeah, I really, really do need to grow in those things, and I certainly don't want to be ineffective or unfruitful, and I certainly don't want to be so nearsighted that I am blind, but what on earth does that last clause, that last phrasing have to do with all that stuff before it? See, the way that I normally would have read that or previously, I should say, is that I would concentrate on all those things I was supposed to be doing, and I would come to that end where it says, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins, and I would say, well, I don't, I don't know why that's there. Okay, groovy. And then I would just go on with my list. Right? <clears throat> See, yes, I need to make every effort to supplement my faith with virtue, and all of those things. I do need to do that. But what is going to motivate me, what's going to fill my sails with wind, what's going to help me desire to do those things is to remember I'm forgiven. 
You see, that's why that's there. That's why that clause is there. But it's so easy for us just to gloss over it, isn't it? And say, I don't know what that clause is doing there. That's so weird. What's he talking about forgetting that I've been cleansed from former sins? It sure seems like, you know, it, what, the way it ought to end is, so get your act together. But that's not how it ends. See, what Peter's doing, and once you begin to see this in Scripture, you're going to see it everywhere. All of the obligations of the gospel, all of the imperatives, all of the law that you find in the Old Testament and the New, they are all always tied to God's prior love for you. All right? Even the Ten Commandments. How do the Ten Commandments start? I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. See, I have loved you. I've done this for you and this for you. Therefore, do this. That's what we forget. We get to the do this part. I mean, you know, serious churches, which I'm sure you're a part of, and I'm sure this church is, serious churches concentrate on do this, the do this part, and we forget this is why. See, we've been cleansed from former sins. Why does it matter if we have spiritual amnesia? Because it will have a direct and concrete impact on our, on our sanctification. Peter's making a statement here. And the statement isn't just, you know, you should kind of remember the gospel. He's saying that one of the reasons that we get stuck and don't grow in just sort of ordinary obedience is that we've got amnesia. We have forgotten that we've been cleansed from our sins. That's why my message to you is not do these 22 things. I know you've already heard that. If you haven't heard it from a pulpit, you've certainly heard it from your own heart. You need to do this and this and this and this and this. What you need to remember, what you must remember, is that the reason to do those things, and I'm not saying don't do those things, but the reason to do those things is because you have been cleansed from your sin. You're forgiven. It's no longer up to you. Everything doesn't depend on you. You are completely forgiven. You're completely free. Be free from guilt. Live free from regret. No guilt in life. Don't you sing that song? In Christ alone? No guilt in life. The Gettys weren't kidding when they wrote that. What would your life be like if you were completely free from guilt? See, when you begin to live in the light of that, then you will find yourself growing in all of those ways that Peter lists there. You'll find yourself growing in them because you're free and you've been loved and that's what being loved does. If we forget the gospel and who we are in Christ, we'll be blinded to, to the realities we need to embrace in order for growth to occur. So for instance, how can our faith grow if all we see is the record of our failure? See, you need faith to get up every morning and try to be obedient. 
don't you? Because you live in your skin. You know what it's like. You know all the times that you've said, Lord, help me today not to scream at my kids. And then you do. Help me today, Lord, not to go to that website, not to read that, not to... Help me today, Lord, to be kind to everybody I come in contact with. You know what, what it's like. You get to the end of the day, and, you know, there's failure there again. And I'm not saying that we don't grow and change. Yes, of course we do. But if what you think is that God's love and welcome for you is predicated upon how well you're getting that sanctification bus on down the road, you're not going to have faith to continue to fight against your sin. You just give up. And then, you know, you'll go to a conference or something will happen and you go, I'm going to do better now. And then after a little while, you just give up again. See, that's that cycle. So we need faith to fight against our sin, to war against sin. Um, and that can only happen if you know that your sins are forgiven. Uh, my husband's counseling with someone who has a problem with internet pornography, a guy who's got a problem with that. Um, and I, that, that is just rife in the church. You understand that. I mean, it used to be that, you know, the only place you could get pornography is if you go buy a magazine or a book or something. And a lot of guys, Christian guys, would not do that because they, you know, they didn't want to get caught with it. But now they just can click on it on their phone. And nobody knows. Nobody sees it. Except God. He sees it. So my husband says to him, your sins are forgiven. See, one of the reasons that we, that we press into illicit pleasure, whatever that illicit pleasure is for you, one of the reasons that we press into that is because we feel so terrible about who we are. Right? Right? See, a, a women would m more commonly tend to say, I feel like I'm such an idiot, I'm such a jerk, I'm just going to go eat chocolate. I'm not saying that eating chocolate's a sin or anything. Well, it could be. You understand what I'm saying. So we, so we, so we self-indulge because we're filled with guilt. The way to get rid of that is, of course, fight against your sin. But along with that, to remember that even when you fail, Jesus Christ is right there with you, and he's saying you're forgiven. Just remember that. It's a different way of looking at it, isn't it? See, in that list, he also has virtue. Our virtue or moral excellence will grow in direct proportion to our apprehension of the fact that we've been cleansed, forgiven, and loved. You see, again, that, that's why Peter ties, having forgotten that he was cleansed from former sins, he ties that to that list, which includes virtue. My desires for things illicit are changing radically. The more I know that I'm loved and forgiven, I don't have to go try to satisfy myself 
with something, whatever that thing might be. And I mean, it might be something as outwardly innocuous as watching some talk show because it feeds within me this puerile desire for gossip. <coughs> so I no longer need to go there or read Christian romance novels. <laughs> you don't want to get me started there. <coughs> See, I don't need to be looking for romance. I'm, I'm engaged. Right to the lover of my soul. And all those things do is feed within me this sort of desire for something more, an identity apart from what Christ has given me. So I, I, I feed that, and then I feel terrible about it, and so I say, well, I'm not going to do it again, and so then I do it again, and I feel terrible about it. Christ has forgiven me. We'll grow in our knowledge and acquaintance of him because we won't be afraid of him. I think a lot of times we don't pray because we don't think that God's really happy to see us. <clears throat> we don't pray because we're not desperate. But we don't pray because we don't think he's really thrilled about seeing us. And fellowshipping and studying him will be the delight of our souls because he's so delightful. You know what? I have these grandchildren. And right now, Jessica, my daughter Jessica and her family, and my son Joel and his family all live together in this great big house. It's one of the ways we're trying to help Joel in seminary. And so five of my six grandchildren live in one house. It's kind of, you know, chaos. And, um, <laughs> but on Tuesdays, I make it, I make it a um, part of my habit to go be with my grandchildren because I, I don't want them to, you know, get to be old and say, well, my mom was some author, or my grandmother was some author, but I never saw her because she was gone all the time. She was too busy. So Tuesdays belong to my kids, and I go down there. And when I drive down the driveway and they see my car coming, they come running out of the house screaming, Mamie's here! Mamie's here! Mamie's here! And they, like, jump me, you know? And trust me, they, they never stop and say, are, are my hands clean? <laughs> Did I do all my homework? See, they don't, they don't do that. Do you know why they don't do that? Because they know I love them and welcome them, and I don't really care if their hands are dirty or not. Get it? See, if you know that you're loved and welcomed then you can just come messy. Go to the Lord. He loves you. You're his bride. Go to him. You know, you think you're messy, you don't even see half the mess. And he just says, come on. You know, I love you. They do that with me because they know I love them. And if I want to have anything in my life, an identity that I want to have with them is that I'm the Mimi who loves them. And they've got parents, they can discipline them, whatever. I'm going to love them. 
Do you see? They're going to want to be with me because I know I, that I love them. That's how God is with you. The Lord loves you. Do you get that? The Lord loves you. You can go be with him, it peanut butter and all. He's okay with it. He can handle it. He touched lepers. You get that, right? He touched the dead. He hung out with, ready? Crack hoes. <laughs> and all the old ladies in the room are going, what's a crack hoe? See, the, that, that immoral woman, the immoral woman who busted into the Pharisee's house, Jesus is sitting at table. They sort of would recline, and his feet were behind him, and he's eating. And she comes in, and she starts kissing his feet and washing his feet with her tears and drying it with her hair. You have no idea how completely inappropriate that was. That a woman like that would touch a holy man. And so what does Jesus do? So you got to get this in your brain. What does he do? Does he go, oh, get away, you're dirty. He enjoys the kisses of a whore. Not sexually, you understand. He's not sinning against her by lusting after her. He welcomes the kisses of a whore. Do you get that? See, you need to wrap your brain around that. Get your heart there. Jesus loves sinners. And that's good news. Do you know why? Because you know in that story, do you know who you are? You can, you can be near him. You understand I'm not saying so, you know, go live like a crack hoe, as if. I'm just telling you, he loves sinners. While you were still ungodly, Christ died for you. While you were his enemy, this is what Romans 5 says, while you were his enemy, he died for you. So he has a bride, but she's not, you know, the bride you would think. Although he's turning her into something. How is he doing that? Because he's so great and glorious. Self-control will come more easily because the idols that used to draw us away from him will have lost their power to entice. All right? So why would you go eat garbage if what you have is a beautiful steak from Ruth Chris? You have Ruth Chris here? Yeah. Do you ever eat there? Some nice food. Right? Nice food. If I went and, you know, went behind some Chinese takeout restaurant and scraped up garbage off of the bottom of the dumpster and put it on a plate and said, here, here's some garbage from the bottom of a dumpster and here's a lovely steak from Ruth's Chris. What would you like? What would you say? It's like, duh. 
See, you've got the steak already. Why do you want that? See, the problem is we're all the time saying, don't eat garbage, don't eat garbage, don't eat garbage, don't eat garbage, and we forget this. Our steadfastness will grow in response to his steadfast love for us. Especially when we face trials and suffering, when we're most tempted to give up, we won't be blinded by our pain, but we'll instead see him standing there faithfully before us as the suffering son. With nail-pierced hands and feet, making intercession for us that our faith will not fail. Last week while I was sick, um, really sick, my, one of my pals wrote me, and we had gone through a pretty rough day, Phil and I, about some stuff that's going on in his life, and not sin, but just outward stuff. And so we had, we had gone through a pretty rough day, and then that night I got sick. It was Friday night, I got sick, and then I wasn't even out of bed till Saturday, I mean, till Tuesday morning. And my friend texted me, she's a wonderful gospel guru, she texted me, and she said, Elise, just remember, you're being showered with love right now, and he's praying for you. See, I'm in the middle of suffering, in the middle of suffering, what you need to remember is you're not being punished for your sins. How do I know that? Because he already was. He already was punished for your sins, so God would be unjust to punish you as well. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't discipline. Yes, he does, but his discipline is never punitive. It's never because he's angry. It's always because he wants to give you more of himself. He understands your suffering, every part of it. And finally, we'll love because we've been sensible to the fact that we have been loved. The kind of love God has called us to is responsive in nature. It's not something we can manufacture on our own. We'll love God because he's loved us and we'll love others for the same reason. Listen, when my husband sins against me, and my husband's a really sweet, godly guy, lovely, lovely man, elder in our church, but he sins, he's a sinner. I don't know why that's a shock. <laughs> He's a sinner. He sins against me. How can I forgive him when he sins against me? I mean, we've been married almost 40 years. Some of this junk's been going on the whole time. It's like, dude, really again? <laughs> Come on. How can I be patient with him and love him? How does that happen? I know I'm supposed to be, right? How does it happen? Because I remember Jesus Christ has been patient with me and loved me. And that he could look at my life and say the same thing. Really? Elise, really? Again? Really? <laughs> but he doesn't. He never does that. He never, ever does that. He continues to forgive, to patiently lead me. That's what he does. And so when my husband sins against me, I can go to him and say, in Christ's name, I forgive you. Honey, I can't demand my pound of flesh from you. That's what we want, too, isn't it? Just, you know, if I let you off the hook, you'll just keep doing it. Really? It's not what the gospel says. So I can extend forgiveness to him. Say, honey, now that doesn't mean that I, you know, downplay it. Say, you know, what, what you've done has hurt me. It's, and this is how. Don't think I don't know how to explain that. 
This is how what you have done has hurt me. But in Christ's name I forgive you because I've been forgiven. And I don't need you to make me some sort of woman of worth. I don't need you to do that because Christ is my husband. And that's not like snotty, well, Christ is my husband. It's Christ is my, Christ's your husband too, babe. Do you see? The gospel makes you able to love others because you've been loved. So you don't need anything from them. Honey, I don't need you to respect me. It would be good, but I don't need it. Why? Because I have everything I need already. We're going to finish up now. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ is your life. Here is your identity. Christ is your life. Who are you? I am the bride of Christ. We are engaged, betrothed. I am his. I can love you and serve you and lay down my life for you and be sinned against by you because I've been loved by the one who washed the feet of people who within a few short hours would deny him and run away from him. When he is in his most serious time of trial in his whole life of suffering, he's in Gethsemane and he's wrestling with his own heart because he knows what's coming and what's coming at him at that moment is not simply the nails and the lash and the crown of thorns. That was nothing, was nothing in comparison to the wrath of God he knew was coming, that he was going to have to drink the cup of God's wrath, that he was going to have to give up his place as the righteous son and stand instead as a sinner under condemnation. At that moment, when he is on the ground in Gethsemane, sweating, as it were, great drops of blood because he's in such agony of soul. He says, stay with me. My soul is very troubled. He asks his three best friends, come with me and pray. Please pray with me. What do they do? They sleep. You see, I can love my husband and my children and my friends, my neighbor. I can love those people because I've been the one who's been loved by the Christ who writhed in agony on the ground for me while I would have deserted him. Don't think you would have been any different. Oh, if I would have been there, I wouldn't have. Oh, yes, you would. See, the Bible says they slept because they were sorrowful. They went to sleep. They hid from their pain. Three times, three times he prays. Three times. He comes back out. What? Are you, not even one hour? You couldn't even have stayed awake one hour with me? After everything? Not one? So what does he do then? He goes back to the father and says, you know what? These guys are really jerks. 
I mean, here I am. I've done all this for them. And what are they doing? They're sleeping. Okay, I'm done. Take me back. <laughs> See that? that? That thought right there? See, that can make you love your neighbor. Because I don't need you to stand with me. And I don't need you to love me. And I don't need you to respect me. I don't need you to say nice things about me. I don't need you to approve of me. I don't need you to invite me to your party. Why? Because I've got Christ and he is my life. Do you see? That's what the gospel does. It frees you to love. It frees you to be able to love others. Here's your identity, and we're going to end with this. This is your identity. <clears throat> well, we might go one more. You are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe. Well, that's good news. Thank you. It is actually good news. It's the good bad news. That's good news because you can understand now that um, <clears throat> the pressure's off. Um, you're a lot more sinful than you think you are. So you don't. You just say, all right, that's true. I am more sinful than I think I am. That's true. Um... You have to embrace this facet of your identity or the gospel will never amaze and empower you or free you. It won't free you. So I don't have to be shocked when I sin anymore. Right? I can't believe I did that. No. Instead of saying, I can't believe I did that, what you should say is, I can't believe I don't do that all the time. So you're more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but you're more loved and welcome than you ever dared hope. See, God knows everything about you. He knows all of those little areas in your heart that you sort of get near to and you go, oh, no, I'm not that bad. That, he knows all of that. He knows, he knows why you think the thoughts you think. He knows all of that. He sees beyond all your entire outward church lady persona. He sees the whole thing. He sees it all. He knows you perfectly, and yet he loves you. You are loved and welcomed. Do you know why? Because you're in Christ. He chose you. He chose you. So in eons past, God looked down from heaven, and in his mind... There was you. She's mine. I take her. Give her to the son. And he knows everything about you, and yet he loves and welcomes you. So that's your identity. You're more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe. You're more loved and welcomed than you ever dared hope. And, and this honestly is where I'm going to end. <coughs> you are completely forgiven, and God has no wrath left for you. What? <clears throat> you are completely forgiven and God has a little bit of wrath for the stuff you keep doing. You are completely forgiven and God has no wrath left for you. Do you believe that? You don't know. <laughs> I know it's probably true, but I don't know. See, the Holy Spirit has to give you faith to believe it. Right? So if you don't believe it right now, if you don't believe it right now, you say, Holy Spirit, help me believe. And he will. 
God has no wrath left for you. Can you say with assurance that, God, when look, look, that when God looks at you, he says, this is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased? This is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Now, you look at the person next to you, and you say, I am God's beloved daughter in whom he's well pleased. Go ahead, say it. It's kind of uncomfortable, wasn't it? I don't know if I should say that or not. I might not be properly respectful. Let me pray for you now. Father, we give you thanks. We thank you for your great love and kindness. We praise you for the great good news in Christ that we are loved and welcomed, and that sinful as we are, far more sinful even than we know, yet you love us and welcome us. You love and welcome us. Thank you. And that we are your beloved daughter with whom you are well pleased. Oh God, grant us faith to believe that and then to live in the light of it for the rest of our days and on the days when we forget it. Holy Spirit, would you be faithful, please, as I know you will be, to come and remind us that we are loved and welcomed, completely forgiven and free from condemnation. We pray in Christ's name, amen.